Well, good morning. My name is Josie Barton, and I'm super glad to be with you here this morning. As I've been working on this sermon, uh, I keep thinking about this one story, a story from my favorite book called Hind's Feet on High Places. And it's an allegory about a girl named Much Afraid. Much Afraid walks with a limp, and she's beset by fear, and she's just tired of living that way. And so she asks the shepherd, who's Jesus in the story, to bring her to the high places, which is a reference to a verse in the book of Habakkuk that says, he will make my feet like the feet of a deer and enable me to stand on the heights. The shepherd agrees, and he pairs her with these two guides named Sorrow and Suffering. And holding their hands, she journeys through many different places, and like the sea of loneliness, you know, things like that. At one point in the journey, <clears throat> though it's far in the distance, she can see the high places straight ahead of her. And then suddenly her path turns and goes towards a desert. She's very upset by this. <laughs> the story tells us, these are words from the story, that she is sick with shock and fear, that she lifts her voice and calls desperately to the shepherd. She speaks to him despairingly and feels as though she's been stabbed in the heart. So she really does not want to go into the desert. And she ends up basically saying to the shepherd, this can't be right. This is a contradiction of everything you promised me. You can't possibly want me to go to the desert. And that's because nobody wants to go to the desert. <laughs> We were discussing, discussing in our neighborhood group on Thursday night, like a, an icebreaker question, have you ever been to the desert and why? And my answer openly and honestly was no, because why would I ever want to do that? What would be the point of going to the desert? But unfortunately, sometimes in our real lives, we do have to go into a desert, a proverbial desert, maybe of loneliness, of loss, of unfulfilled dreams, whether we want to or not. And that's where we find the Israelites in our text today, in a proverbial and literal desert. We're going to dive in because there's a lot that happens in this text, um, and then we'll sort of parse it out together. As we start today, we're in Numbers chapter 14, and we're following the Israelites through the desert on their way to the promised land. And in all honesty, if you've read this far in the Bible, they're not doing great <laughs> so far. They've been led out of Egypt after hundreds of years in enslavement. They've seen a host of miracles that have led to their continued survival in the desert. But the fact remains that at this point, they've been in the desert for two years. I mean, they're moving, by some estimates, two million people through the desert at this point in time, including their livestock. And it takes time to do that. So they're tired, they're feeling doubtful, they keep complaining. They're complaining about their location, they're complaining about their food, they're complaining about their leadership. They keep saying that they should just go back to Egypt. At least in Egypt they, and then insert whatever their complaint is for the day. In short, and very understandably, they are ready to just settle down somewhere, to have a home. And luckily, God has the perfect place picked out for them, Canaan. God's promised this land to them for centuries, way back when Abraham first encountered God in the book of Genesis. So the existence and the promise of this very land is very much a part of the oral history of Israel. Like they know that they are arriving at the land that God has promised them. This is the land they would have been dreaming of and praying for during the years of their enslavement. It's the promise that they've been holding on to, a land flowing with milk and honey, and today they arrive there. Not just after those two years in the desert, but after those hundreds of years of waiting and promise. 
the Israelites arrive at a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is like the southern tip of this land. And Moses decides to send some men on like a fact-finding mission, one from every tribe of Israel, so 12 in total. And these 12 men are meant to go and do the following. It says, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? So you get the idea. And so the men did just that. They looked around, they took a 40-day journey through Canaan, and they even brought back fruit with them, which was so full and so rich, they had to carry it on poles between two of them. The land was as amazing as God had promised them. And they say so themselves when they give the report back to Israel. So it sounds like they should be in pretty good shape at this point. They're finally done walking through the desert. They're in a place whose land is ready and able to accept this large influx of people. But unfortunately, they don't leave it at how great the land is. Instead, they keep on talking, and they go on to say, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, that phrase doesn't mean anything to us, but for a little bit of context, the descendants of Anak are descendants of this group of people called the Nephilim. The Nephilim were said to be literal giants, right? Some people think they might have been the offspring of angels and humans. Other people think they were just like peak humanity, very big, very strong. Um, but no matter what the true origin of the Nephilim is, they were real, real big. So when they say they saw the descendants of Anak there, what they mean is they're looking at the descendants of the descendants of giants, very big people. There are giants in the land that God has promised to us. Now, one of the 12, Caleb, speaks up at this point, and he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Like, yes, guys, there are some big men here, but this land has been promised to us, so let's go and get it. And while one of the others agrees with Caleb, a man by the name of Joshua, the other 10 respond like this. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And it's here that things really start to unravel. The people believe that bad report. They refuse to go up and take the land. They refuse to believe that God could deliver their enemies into their hands and give them what he's promised to them. Joshua and Caleb at this point beg Israel, don't believe the lies. Joshua says, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But there were giants so the Israelites refuse. And God decides that yes, his people will still get that land as their inheritance, but not until all of the people who are refusing to believe that God can do this thing are dead, which ends up being about 40 years, one for every day that the spies explored Canaan. The 10 men who stirred up the fear among the community were killed. And the Israelites at that point, realizing it's serious, try to backtrack. And they're like, okay, God, no, we believe you now. We'll go, let's go take the land. But at this point, with God's favor withdrawn, it's too late. 
And when they try to attack, what they feared actually comes true. They are overtaken. They're not strong enough to take over the land. And they're relegated to wander the desert for 40 years. So it's a real feel-good tale that we find ourselves in in numbers. I think to really understand this story, we've got to understand where we're finding the Israelites as a people here in Numbers 13. I mean, collectively, they had been through a great trauma, a centuries-long enslavement that grew increasingly brutal, especially towards the end. Though their rescue from Egypt had, of course, been miraculous, they'd also watched thousands of people die by drowning and die in battle in the desert. Their nervous systems are on high alert as they'd wandered the desert for two years after their hundreds of years long enslavement, just wondering when they're going to have a home. So when we find them here, what we're not experiencing or seeing is just a bunch of petulant grown-ups set on getting their own way. Not just that, partially that, but a group of people who are truly afraid of these giants in the land because their whole lives had been fear. We recently worked through this series here at the Foundry called Thought Life, and I think it's important to note that as we're going to discuss fear today, fear and anxiety, which I'll use interchangeably, as emotions are not sinful and they're not bad, feeling fear is a part of being human. The Israelites weren't punished because they felt fear. They were punished because they let their fear take precedence over what was true. They let their fear get them stuck instead of acknowledging it, but still moving forward in faith. So let's talk about fear. It's at this point that I have to make a confession to you, and it's that I may be the least qualified person on the planet to talk to a group of people about fear. And it's because I am one of the most fearful and anxious people that you will ever meet. I'm not like using that as a cutesy sermon illustration. It's an actual confession to you. I am not afraid of things that often happen or that like most people are afraid of, or not just afraid of it, like illness and aging. I'm afraid of like every bad thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. That means driving through tunnels. I'm afraid of my children running up and down stairs. I'm afraid of choking. I'm afraid of elevators, of standing too close to the edge of something tall. I mean, big or small, if you can think of it, I have probably felt anxiety about it. And even though I'm saying this to you very easily, fear plagues me every single day. My nearest and my dearest can tell you that my anxieties are not like adorable little quirks. They're debilitating issues that impact not just me, but all the people that I love. So while this makes me unqualified to try to talk to you about fear, in some ways it maybe makes me the most qualified person to talk to you about fear because I really deeply know, just like stitched into my DNA, how pernicious and destructive fear can be how it can get us stuck in the desert when what we want and what we have been given is the promised land. Last week, Lindsay talked to us about the sorts of things that we might be afraid of in our desert days. What I want to talk about today is how fear can actually get us stuck in those desert days instead of letting us move forward towards the promised land. Just like the Israelites were left in the desert because of their fear, the first way that fear can leave us in the desert is that fear forgets. In the two years that the Israelites had been in the desert, they had seen countless miracles and received endless provision from God. This is just a small list of some of the ways that they had seen miracles. Before they uh, escaped slavery, they saw plagues sent on Egypt, locusts, frogs, rivers of blood that made Pharaoh set them free. 
they saw a whole sea split open in front of them and were able to walk across on dry land. They were given food every day from heaven, water from rocks, enough to satiate millions of people, so much quail meat that it was like God's malicious compliance. They got tired of having so much meat after they had complained about it. They saw God help them defeat an army just by holding up their leader's arms. That was it. As long as Moses' arms were up, the Israelites were winning. They saw God's presence as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They knew that Moses had encountered him on Mount Sinai, I mean, over and over again. They have seen incredible things. And yet at the beginning of chapter 14, after the negative report is spread about the promised land, the Israelites say this, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? We can look at this now and go, man, this story could have been so simple, right? They could have just said, yeah, there's giants there, but this is the land that God has promised us, and we trust that he's going to provide for us again. It's easy to shake our heads and be like, how is it possible that you didn't just believe in God? But fear has this way of making us forget. And scientifically speaking, that's true. Like, studies suggest that every time we recall something, we have the ability to sort of alter it. We can strengthen it or weaken it in our brains. So if you think about all these amazing miracles spread out over the course of two years in the sand and wind and monotony of the desert, those miracles weaken and dim. There's also evidence that the actual stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, when they're in our bodies over extended periods of time, like centuries of enslavement or living in the desert for two years, can cause actual forgetfulness, so fear can literally make us forget. But even apart from the science of it, I think we can all agree that part of the human condition is that it's easier to focus on the bad than it is to focus on the good. We're prone to forget. We're prone to let the bad kind of loom over us and let the good scoot to the back of our minds, and we don't even really need science to prove it because we've experienced it, or at least I know that I have. Fear makes us forget, and when we forget all the good that God has done for us, the ways he has come through, all the times he has provided, we end up stuck in the desert. Another way that fear can leave us in the desert is that it exaggerates. You might have heard the phrase that fear is a liar, but I find that fear doesn't lie to us as much as it gaslights us. It sort of twists facts and exaggerates what's true. In my own life, I see this on the daily. I have very intense claustrophobia, um, which really just ends up being like this deep-seated uh, deep fear of like being controlled or getting stuck, like of losing my agency or my ability to escape a situation. When these things combine, it has created this perfect storm that's called Josie can't drive through tunnels anymore <laughs> because my very real fear of small spaces and my very real fear of being stuck anywhere tell me, Josie, there might be traffic in the tunnel. And that's true. I mean, if you live in Baltimore, you know there probably will be traffic in the tunnel at any given point if you try to drive through it. But then my fear keeps talking to me. It exaggerates. And I'm Embarrassed to share this with you, but here's insight into the way my brain works. I start hearing things like, if there's traffic in the tunnel, you might get stuck halfway through. 
And if you get stuck halfway through the tunnel, what if there's an earthquake while you're in there? The tunnel might start collapsing around you, and you have no way out. Now, none of that is untrue, but it's just not valid. It's an exaggeration of what is true in all of the worst ways. And my husband and my children especially can tell you that this exaggeration holds unspeakable power over the decisions that I make. I drive through the city or across the Francis Scott Key Bridge every day just to avoid either of the tunnels. You know, no big deal, maybe an extra 30 or 45 minutes to my commute every day. But that time could be better spent. There are healthier ways I could be using it to deliver or, or to have freedom, to have family, to have lightness and peace. So fear doesn't lie, but it does exaggerate. When the 12 men first return from their fact-finding mission, they say that the land is good, even while admitting that the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Now, this is an accurate and factual retelling of what the men saw in Canaan. The people of Canaan were powerful and the cities were fortified and large. But then look at how their story changes as soon as fear takes over, right after Caleb suggests that they go and attack. Now the men say, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. There are so many exaggerations in this retelling of events. First, that the land devours those who live in it. It's a little dramatic. There are many people happily and healthily living in Canaan, many tribes of people, so it's simply an exaggeration. Second, they say, all the people we saw there are giants, and then go on to say that they saw the Nephilim there. But the first time they told us that they saw the descendants of the descendants of the Nephilim, not the OG giants themselves. Exaggerations. Finally, they say that they seemed like grasshoppers to the people of Canaan. I suppose it's possible that someone in Canaan said that to them, but it's also a very dramatic way of saying, like, we felt small. They're going for the hyperbole. They're going for the dramatic effect because fear exaggerates to us. It takes what is true and it twists it, and it makes it worse. There's a, a reel or a TikTok that I saw once where a woman is crying very convincingly to the camera. She says, guys, I can't believe I'm on here making this video, but my husband just told me that he doesn't love me anymore. I don't know what happened to us. And in the background, we can hear like, the beleaguered sigh of her husband saying, I did not say that. I just said we didn't need Chick-fil-A for dinner tonight. And that's the exaggerative power that fear has in our lives, right? It can take pure motives. It can take achievable goals, kind words, healthy conflicts, and turn them into very different things in our own heads. That's what we see happening to the Israelites here. They were facing a challenge, to be sure, but it was not the insurmountable challenge that they had let themselves believe. Fear exaggerates, and when it exaggerates, we can't move forward. We get stuck in our dry desert days. The last way that fear can strand us in a desert is that fear sabotages. The fact is, fear ends up delivering us into the belly of the beast, right into the very thing that we're afraid of and trying so hard to avoid. 
in a really very serious example of this, I want, you, I want you to think of the hit 2004 movie, Mean Girls, okay? In this movie, we see Katie Heron. She's a new student at her high school, and of course, she's desperate to make friends. She, she attaches to the first folks who are kind to her, and they ask her to go on a fact-finding mission so they can destroy the Mean Girls at the school, the plastics. And Katie, afraid of losing those tenuous friendships, agrees. So now that she's operating in fear, right, the fear of missing out on friendships, fear becomes the driver of her choices. But increasingly, her choices begin to drive away the very friendships that she's so anxious to hold on to. And at the climax of the movie, we see these friends driving away from her, the friendship has been broken, and they're shouting at her, guess what, you are plastic, you are a mean girl. In her desperation to hold on to her friendships, in her willingness to let fear drive the ship, Katie finds herself in the exact situation that she was trying to avoid. And although the Israelites were in an ever so slightly more life or death situation than Katie Heron, they encountered the same very sad truth about fear. After the 10 men spread that exaggerated report about the promised land, the people end up listing all the reasons they should go back to Egypt. We're going to die here. We're going to be taken by the sword. Our children will be taken as plunder. And they flatly refuse to believe that God will give them the land he promised them. So God says this to the Israelites, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with an uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness." In one of the saddest ever instances of self-sabotage, the Israelites' refusal to trust God through their fear brings about the exact outcome that they were afraid of. Like Katie Heron and Mean Girls, fear sabotaged them right into the thing they were trying to avoid and control. And I can't even blame them for trying to control it. Maybe they thought that if they refused, God would come through in another way. But by letting fear take over, they sabotaged the thing they wanted. They gave up what was their birthright, and they got stuck in the very desert that they were afraid of. And the fact is, fear does that same thing to us. Last week, Lindsay talked to us about some of our driving or core fears, right? Being uncomfortable, missing out, losing control. And so many of our like more palatable or smaller everyday fears actually have roots in these bigger fears. And these core issues become self-fulfilling prophecies. When we're afraid of being uncomfortable, we try to surround ourselves with comfort and ease. And we lose our resilience. We lose our grit. Little by little, smaller and smaller inconveniences make us uncomfortable. And the spiral goes on. We're delivered to the belly of the beast. When we're afraid of missing out on something, you know, we're always looking around to see what's going on. We're not attuned to what is happening right in front of us. So we miss out when we're afraid of missing out. When we're afraid of losing control, and I'm talking to myself here, we make decisions to try to sanitize and order our lives. Decisions that we would not make otherwise. 
And in doing so, we end up losing our agency, right? We're, we are not really in control of our decisions because fear is making the decisions for us. Fear sabotages us by delivering us right to the doorstep of the thing that we're afraid of. It leaves us wandering in the desert just inches from the promised land. So what is the antidote to all of this? No, I'm asking you guys, what is the antidote to all of this? No, I, I don't know. If I knew, I'd be in a much better place, obviously. I mean, for me, there's probably some like cognitive behavioral therapy and medication that needs to go into this, but the fact is anxiety and fear are not only mental. There's a physical side and there's a spiritual side, and all of that combines in a very complicated way. These fears don't only live in my brain, right? They're also in my soul, and they partially reflect just a, a fundamental misunderstanding of God's power and his goodness. I mean, in short, I just don't trust God to be good. So I humbly submit some ways that we might stop giving fear the power to leave us in the desert. If fear makes us forget, then I think one thing we can do this week is to try to remember this week, let's sit down and just write out the ways that God has shown up. And when we start to forget, when fear starts to strand us in the desert and we're thinking, I'm never going to get out of here, we can pull out the list and remember that we will because we have before, right? The promised land is just around the bend. The second thing we can do is to filter our thoughts. Fear exaggerates, but exaggeration thrives in rumination, so in letting our thoughts like stay focused on the exaggerations. In that series we did called Thought Life, we read the verse, Philippians 4, 8, that says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, if anything is right or pure, or lovely or admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. For the last 20 years, my best friend has sometimes very annoyingly reminded me of this verse when I'm talking to her about my anxiety. And she tells me to sort of use it like a colander to like catch the fearful thoughts before they settle into my brain. But I started thinking about it more like a net. So when I'm not feeling anxious, which is rare, the net is slack. Um, but when the anxious th thoughts, especially at night, start to exaggerate in my brain, I, I pull the net tight and I just have this mental image of like the fears bouncing off of the net and like, into an abyss. It's like a little fear trampoline <laughs> inside my brain. And it is a silly thing, but it actually does help me because it gives me space to remember, okay, I need to remember what God has done. I can pray or just to fill my mind with things that are not exaggerations, that are truths. Finally, if fear sabotages us, right, if it delivers us into the thing we fear, I think the antidote, so to speak, is to actively work to help deliver people out of their fears. So that might mean you yourself looking for therapy or counseling. That's on my short list of things to do. But it could also mean serving other people, right? Getting out of our own heads um, is a great way to not let our fears sabotage us. Now, there are myriad ways to do this in a city like Baltimore, but the project that Liza just mentioned is a really easy one, right? To start thinking about, man, what must our brothers and sisters in Christ in Uganda fear as a result of not having access to clean water, right? Things like illness or scarcity or insufficiency, and how can we work to alleviate those fears? When we work to do that, fear loses its power to sabotage us. And we bring all of us a little bit closer to the promised land. 
I started today by referencing one of my very favorite literary characters, Much Afraid. When we met her at the start, she was very deeply upset by the concept of having to go into the desert, but then the shepherd asks her if she'll go anyway. Does she trust him? And she says yes, and she went. And while she's there, Much Afraid very much does not live up to her name. Instead, she commits to learning and to seeing. She doesn't forget what the shepherd has done. She doesn't exaggerate what is happening to her. She doesn't let her fear sabotage her. And soon enough, her path turns back towards the high places. But before that happens, we see her stumble on this one lone flower, a little yellow flower growing out of a water pipe. It was the only plant she had seen in her whole time in the desert. And she asks the flower its name because plants can talk in this story. And the flower says that it's called acceptance with joy. And then we read this. Much afraid thought of the things which she had seen in the desert. Somehow the answer of the little golden flower, which grew all alone in the waste of the desert, stole into her heart and echoed there, faintly but sweetly, filling her with comfort. She said to herself, he has brought me here when I did not want to come for his own purpose. I too will look up into his face and say, behold me, I am thy little handmaiden, acceptance with joy. It's true that like much afraid, like the Israelites, God may bring us into some desert days. But it's also true that it's fear that will keep us stuck there. If we can accept those days with joy as much as we're able to muster, if we refuse to give in to fear, not to not feel fear, but to not let it make us forget, to not let it exaggerate, to not let it sabotage us, then the God that led us into that desert will also certainly, eventually, lead us out and into the land he has promised us. We do not need to be afraid. As we move into a time of communion, I just want to encourage you, if you're in your desert days, if you're like me and fear is just your constant companion, this moment of remembrance is for you. To remember Jesus' body and blood shed for us so that we can know and be near to him and just be free of the tyranny of anxiety. And if you're in your high places or your promised land with a desert far behind you and you're leaping around up there like a deer, this moment of remembrance is also for you. To remember that it's Jesus' sacrifice that enables us to thrive. And if you're somewhere in between, this moment of remembrance is for you as well. Just a moment to draw on Jesus' strength, to find acceptance with joy, and to think about the love that he demonstrated for us when he died on the cross. There are four stations around the room in the front and back. They're all gluten-free. And after I pray, we just invite you to get up and take the cracker, which is a symbol of Jesus' body broken on the cross for us, and to take the cup, which is a symbol of his blood shed for us, and then to go back to your seat and take a moment to just remember. Remember God's love and power, his faithfulness and his goodness, even in our desert days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you we have freedom from fear. God, we uh, confess and admit the ways that we have given in to fear, that we've let it make us forget and sabotaged us, Lord, and exaggerated to us. 
but we thank you that you are willing to bring us out of the desert. God, you are good. You have provided. And we say together now, Lord, that we trust you and we love you.